0: Our first lesson is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. You'll find this on page 822 of the Bibles that we provide. Jesus has just told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and face a cross in order to save us. Now he tells us that there is a cross for them and for us as well, if we would be his disciples. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul. The gospel of Christ. And our text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, we are looking uh, again this Sunday at the topic of holiness. And we come this morning to the goal uh, of holiness. As we've seen, holiness is not uh, what it too often uh, means in our culture. It's used more as an accusation or an insult. People uh, use it of someone that they think is holier than thou or so excruciatingly careful that you can't have any fun with them or they are always worried that someone somewhere is having a good time. But that's not what holiness is in the Bible. Holiness is wholeness. It is being fully human instead of being like the beasts that perish. It is supremely being like Jesus, who kept God's law perfectly by perfectly loving God and perfectly loving others. And that's what holiness is. It is love increasingly possessing our lives, self-love diminishing, love of others, love of the Lord increasing. And so we look this morning at the goal of holiness. Hebrews 12, beginning with verse one, we'll read down through verse 14. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one Will see the Lord, the word of the Lord. Wherever the gospel is not even given a hearing, wherever it is simply rejected out of hand, it's not, I would argue, because those in opposition to it are so brilliant or cogent in their arguments, certainly. Uh, widespread rejection of the gospel within our culture is not because the new atheists have come up with anything new. Uh, Basically what they're putting forward and have put forward since 9-11 when they really geared up and decided religion was the source of all trouble in the world. What they're putting forward are all the ancient arguments that have been brought forth against theism generally and Christianity in particular and that have been answered eloquently throughout history by Christian people and continue to be. They get torque in those places where Christian people are not Christ followers, where people make great professions, but their lives are just like everyone else. In those places, the arguments suddenly seem to make sense, whereas in places where communities of Christ-followers are living vibrant, joyful, transformed, and culture-reforming lives. Those arguments seem to make no impact whatsoever. As we saw in our study of 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power and where Christian people are beginning to walk together in the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing can stand before God's truth because the testimony born, the message presented, and the lives being lived actually satisfy the deepest longings even of those living in rebellion against God's truth because what it is is a picture of what we were made for. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are growing weary. They are facing persecution and trouble from the Empire. They've grown weary and they're running the risk of falling back and no longer following Jesus. And the author of Hebrews has been calling them back to the obedience of faith, to the power of walking in the knowledge of what Christ has done for us and in the power of what He has provided for us. And in the previous chapter, chapter 11, we have that great uh, picture gallery of faithful people from the Old Testament. Not perfect people, not people who never stumbled or never failed, but people who had set their faces as he says about Abraham, toward that city with foundations whose builder and maker is God, who had decided that they would believe the promises of God and leave behind life as they'd known it and trust God. Those on this new trajectory of life are held up as pictures of what it means actually to believe. It causes one to get up and move in a new direction. But when he reached the end of chapter 11 he said all of these though they were following faithfully did not receive the thing that they were seeking because God had kept that for us they were still the other side of the coming of the Messiah and the work of redemption but now he says all of this has been done you know these things you have this new life the life of the risen conquering son of God And so he starts, as we just saw, chapter 12 by saying, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also cast away, throw aside everything that would encumber us and hold us back, all the sin and brokenness and distraction of life that occupies us and consumes us and holds us back from being the people of God. And then, as we come to the final verses that we read, he points the goal, the aim of all of this. And so, what I'd like for us to do in this final little mini-series on holiness is to look at the four moves that he makes, Four pictures that he gives us of the nature of our life in Christ, the nature of the life of the person of faith. And the first picture that he gives is that you and I are running a race. We're in a race. And the race that he describes is not a sprint. It's not a dash. It's not something that you can just do quickly and get over and it's done. I walked the aisle. I prayed a prayer. I'm saved, thank God, now I'll decide whether I want to follow Jesus. No, no, Bible never describes life in Christ like that because it's life in Christ. James, in the book right next door to this one, says, you believe all the right stuff, you do well. The demons believe all the right stuff and have the good sense to tremble. So he says, first, you are in a race. And the race as he describes it, the word that he uses, is agon, from which we get the English word agony. And it's the word that was used by the Greeks and Romans to describe a marathon. It was a long-distance race, which at points would bring you agony. But if you were going to finish that race and know the joy of completion, you were going to run with that agon, with that agony. And he gives us three recommendations for the running of the race in the first two verses. He says first, throw off everything that hinders you, every sin and everything else that holds you back from running this marathon. So let me just ask you, what is holding you back right now? from being the person that you thought you'd be by now when first you trusted Jesus. If you are confessing faith and yet still nurturing an area of bondage in your life that you've simply come to terms with, you're not in the battle, you're not fighting it, you're not seeking the power of God, you're not claiming the promises of God that this is already broken, you are simply In it, presuming on the grace of God because Jesus died for our sins and I was told I was forgiven, the author would say, you're not running the race. Or you're so encumbered that you're not really running the race, you're not going to finish it, you're not going to make it, you're going to quit because you're dragging all this that is not consistent with being serious. You look at people that run distant races. They, they don't gear up the way somebody does to hike the Appalachian Trail. They don't put a big pack on their back and hiking boots. And No, you strip down. You wear as little as possible without getting arrested. You wear the lightest shoes that you can get away with wearing that will give you whatever support you need. And you want to be utterly unencumbered, but it's not just sin. There can be things that in themselves are perfectly fine, perfectly neutral, perhaps even God's good gifts, but you have let that thing become an idol in your life. It is occupying your attention and your time and your resources in a way that is holding you back from being the man or the woman that God would have you be. Throw it away! Be done with it. When you lie dying, if you've the luxury to lie dying and look back in your life, you will not for one moment be so grateful that you spent so much time away from your family, away from the people God had entrusted to you, away from the responsibilities and the opportunities that God had given you. Doing that, you won't be. I've been a pastor a long time, and I've been around enough dying people Back during the Vietnam War, as a corpsman with the Third Marines, I have never heard a person who is dying say, "I'm so glad I went out and partied one more time last night." I am so glad that I made one more trip over there to away from my family to do fill in the blank. Never. What I've heard is regret after regret after regret, even from serious Christian people. If only, I told you, Marianne and I had the privilege a few years ago of sitting for a couple hours with Billy Graham, the two days or a day after his best buddy John Stott had died. And he said, oh, I wish I'd prayed more. I wish I'd studied God's Word more. I wish I'd spent less time trying to keep up with all the stuff that I can't even remember now and that's passed away, and of course I thought. Man, if you're not spending enough time, (laughs) I'm in serious trouble. Throw it away. Just throw it away. That's what he says. It'll encumber you. And then he says, run with perseverance, run with endurance. Run, run through it. When I used to run, not like some of you all, um, but when I used to run distance, I'd often have to run through that first desire after a few miles to quit. Just, what am I doing this for? This is ridiculous. You know, I could be home, you know, with my feet up. You run through that, and then you begin to lift. There's a joy, the runner's high, the sense of euphoria. Of, I wouldn't do anything else in the world. How much? More time, I I don't ever want to stop running. He says, that's how you are to run, with endurance. And it's not, you don't get to design the race course that you run. The race that is set before you, it's given to you. Well, how do I know what it is? Thirdly, he says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of this race of faith. Uh, I've told you before, every time I've ever read that (coughs) as an adult since my kids were older, I think of my daughter Rachel when she was at Farragut, she was still just a little slip of a girl, but she wanted to run distance and and, uh, so it, it wasn't distance, it was middle distance but the 400, which to me is a killer because, you know, it's not short enough to run fast and it's not long enough to pass anybody. you just kill yourself for 400 yards, but that was her thing. And she was on that great Farragut track team that kept winning state championships. Well, there was this African-American gal who was the fastest runner in the state then, and she took a liking to this little white gal. And she said, Rachel, honey, you just tuck right in behind me, and you you just don't worry about anybody else. You just follow me. And that's what she would do. And that gal would just move aside the wind, the resistance, everything, as she just tore up there and raised me right behind her. That's what Jesus is saying. You just get in my draft. I've done this. I've been there before. Follow Jesus. You cannot be his if you're not following him. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Then he changes the metaphor in verses 3 and 4. He says, okay, it's a race, an agonizing marathon, but one that brings joy. Then he said, it's a fight. You are in a battle. And the word that he uses here for struggle, he says, consider Jesus who uh, in, in the face of all the resistance that he got from people, continued to keep on and keep on. And he says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the shedding of blood. I always read that and think, good grief, I don't even keep going until I break a sweat, much less start bleeding. And the word he uses for struggle is antagonizomai, from which we get our word antagonist. We look at that, and we have to ask ourselves, the things that God is calling me to throw off, do I see them as really so beautiful and so wonderful? And if only I didn't have to, but I guess I have to, so okay. If so, we don't yet see things as they are. He says, you are in a fight, and everything that draws you away from the Lord and His purpose for you is your antagonist. You have to see it as an enemy, and you have to be at enmity with it. You have to look at it and say, this thing will destroy me spiritually if I keep playing around with this. This is not my friend. This is my enemy, and I'm in a battle. And you don't, just as you don't go out one day and decide to run marathons, you don't go out one day and climb into the ring or into the, the octagon with an MMA <laughs> champ. you got to train. you got to stay fit. you got to work at it. That's what the author is saying to these people. He's saying this is for real. This is life. You are in a run that is long and grueling, but joy is only found that side of it. You are in a fight and you need to to fight. You need to see things as they are. Well, if you're feeling a little beaten up, his third picture really draws our hearts back. He says, you are in a family. If you are a child of God, God is your Father, and He wants all of this for your good. It is discipline. The Lord is disciplining you. He's not punishing you. He's not trying to hurt you. He's making you strong. He's disciplining you for good just as a loving parent looks and says, I'm not going to let you keep going that way. Listen, if, if the Bible is true and you profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and yet there is an area or there are areas in your life that you know are against God's word, against God's law. You know that there are things that the Bible calls sin. You're not in the fight against them. You're enjoying them and then enjoying being forgiven. You've got a good deal with God. I mean, we're saved not by works, we're saved by grace. You like to sin, God likes to forgive. This is the greatest religion you've ever heard of. That's how most American Christians see Christianity, and it's a false religion. That's not what the Bible teaches. If that's you, I think the author of Hebrews, and I think Paul and Jesus would say, you're not yet saved. Because if you are, he disciplines those he loves. And he says, if, he's not, if you are running from him and just walking in, you know, the midst of happiness and Everything's going your way. It's zippity-doo-dah time. That is not good. That's not because God loves you so much. It's because you're probably not His child. I want to be careful because we're all at different places in our pilgrimage, and, and some people never get free of some of the things that have bound them up. My question is not, are you free of everything? The battle goes on until death. What I'm asking is, are you in the fight? Are you in the battle? Does it grieve you? That, to me, is is always the big mark. If you are in Christ, you will never again come under the wrath and curse of God. You've been justified. He's put away his wrath toward you. But if you are his child, as a loving parent, he will discipline those whom he loves in order to get you back on track. So have you known the loving discipline of the Lord when you tried to run from Him? And why would we when His ways are the ways that lead to life and joy and peace? I would put it this way, I've said this to you before, but I speak from my own experience. When I grew up in a Christian home, I knew it all. I could boy, I could win the Bible drills in Sunday school and quote whole chapters of the Bible to you. I mean, I knew all the right answers, had theology down from my mother's womb. But I was the one in the family who thought he'd been born again but hadn't been because I wanted everything out there. I endured this and tried to figure how soon the day would come when I could taste everything out And when the day came, I ran and wanted no part of this. Depending on the day at which you caught me, I might have said I still believed it all, but I had no interest in any of it, had no part in any of it, didn't darken the doors of church, didn't read a Bible. I would pray if I was in trouble or scared of something, oh God, but you know, everybody does that. I knew that God had changed me the day that I couldn't really enjoy all that anymore. I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy sometimes the consequences of it. I didn't always like the way I felt in the morning. But by three in the afternoon, I was looking at my watch. I couldn't wait. Let's get this day done so I can get out there back at it. And when God got a hold of me, I couldn't enjoy it anymore, however pleasurable it was. It was just a sense of how could I do that How can I go back to that, like a dog going back to his vomit, as the proverb says? Why why do I… What is wrong with me? God, help me. I don't want to… That's what I'm asking you. What brings you joy, disobedience or obedience, walking with Christ or walking away from Him? That's a mark. And finally, he says, you're on a journey. And the journey is toward glory. You get to share in the joy of the one who took up his cross and endured it all and bore our sins and sorrows for the joy that was set before him, the glory that was his again, which he'd laid aside to come be one of us. And so he says to us, Strive. He's not talking about justification. We don't have to strive for justification. We receive that as a gift. He's talking about sanctification. He says, Strive to be at peace with all men and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter your profession of faith if you are not on that trajectory behind Christ, toward the city of God, you're still living in the land of death. I've used the illustration before, but does it mean we're to be perfect? Well, we're to strive for that. And as I suggested last week, we, we are perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect according to the Sermon on the Mount when we forgive even our enemies. But our righteousness is always Christ. But we all know, parents know, teachers know, everybody knows the difference between an obedient child and a disobedient child. An obedient child isn't a perfect child. An obedient child sometimes messes up. But the trajectory is one of obedience. The desire of that child is to be obedient. When they do mess up, when they do rebel, they're the first to come back in and go, I am so sorry, I don't know what got into me forgive me. The disobedient one is always looking for the way out the door, for the excuse, for the special circumstances. Always. Sometimes they do the right thing for a reward or to avoid punishment, or they kind of forgot not to do the wrong thing. But the trajectory is the other way. I'm asking you, are you following Jesus? Because that's the only way that we finally will see our Father's face. He says, without which no one will see him. You will only see him if you've been walking toward that day desiring that above all. So where do we start? Well, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also cast off everything that encumbers us, everything that holds us back, and run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and said to us through John in his revelation, to those who endure, those who run the race, you will sit with me on my throne.